Hello! A quick note. The episode you're about to hear was released when this podcast operated under an old name, which was Pessimist's Archive. The podcast is now called Build for Tomorrow. Okay, enjoy. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the things from history that shaped us and how we can shape the future. I'm Jason Pfeiffer. Consider the following details and tell me what year I'm talking about. An American presidential election is coming, and it feels like the fate of the nation hangs in the balance. A foreign power wants one of those candidates to win, so it begins to interfere in the election by cleverly manipulating the greatest technology of the day. The people who run mainstream media outlets are aware that this is going on, but cannot stop themselves from becoming pawns in the manipulation anyway. So what year is this all happening? Well, 2016, obviously, and 2020 for sure, but also the year 1796. This was the first election after George Washington served his two terms, making it the first contested election in American history. And it's also the first one in which political parties played a role. The election was between incumbent Vice President John Adams and former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. And the country doing the manipulation, the outside force that wanted to tilt the election in the face of their guy was France. Jefferson was their guy, and if Jefferson were to win, that that would be very good for them. This is Jeffrey. Jeffrey L. Pasley, a professor of history at the University of Missouri, an associate director of the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy. And Jeffrey says it was no secret why the French wanted Jefferson to beat Adams. France was in the middle of the French Revolution and at war with much of Europe. They wanted America as an ally, just as France had supported America during its own recent revolution. And if America wouldn't pick a side, then France at least wanted America to be a neutral party. France also wanted to be able to use American soil as a military launching ground so it could try to get back some of its Caribbean islands like Haiti, which it had lost to revolutions. But under the Washington administration, where John Adams was vice president, America was patching up its relationship with Great Britain and the French were at war with Great Britain. So France wasn't happy about any of this and wanted to stop the alliance. They had interfered in things before. There was a treaty with Great Britain, a commercial treaty called the, the Jay Treaty that the Washington administration had signed and in the terms of which were mostly secret. So the French paid to have it leaked. So now we can add leaking to the list of comparisons between 1796 and 2016. Just get some private government correspondence, a commercial treaty in one case, some emails in another, and weaponize them. Anyway, France saw the 1796 American election as a pivotal turning point. They thought that if Adams won, he'd carry on building a relationship with Great Britain. But Jefferson, on the other hand, was seen as pro-France and would build a stronger alliance between France and America. So the French really, really wanted Jefferson. And as the election of 1796 neared, the French got bold. They had the French ambassador to the U.S. send three letters to Thomas Pickering, America's then Secretary of state. But the French ambassador also sent these letters to a newspaper called the Philadelphia Aurora, a paper edited by Benjamin Franklin's grandson, which reached all the important people in Philadelphia, which of course was the temporary U.S. capital at the time, and was also generally sitting around in most taverns. If it was in the Aurora, it would be seen and it would start conversation because these letters had a message. With the very explicit intention of swinging the election, essentially saying if they voted for John Adams, there'd be a war. There would be a war. But 
that's not how the letters read, of course. They don't come right out and say it. Instead, the French just lay the guilt on thick. Here's a little bit from early in the third letter where the French ambassador is explaining how the French people used to feel so close to Americans. They expected to find in the ports of the United States an asylum as sure as home, they thought, if I may use the expression, there to find a second country. The French government thought as they did. Oh, hope, worthy of a faithful people, how hast thou been deceived? Then the ambassador recounts many grievances about how the French feel betrayed. And, you know, if America is Great Britain's friend, then America can't enjoy the benefits of being France's friend, too. But there is one way to ensure delicious croissants for everyone, they say, and that is to stop John Adams and elect Thomas Jefferson. Here's how the French minister says it without saying it. Oh, Americans covered with noble scars. Oh, you have so often flown to death and to victory with French soldiers. You who know those generous sentiments which distinguish the true warrior, whose hearts have always vibrated with those of your companions in arms, consult them today to know what they experience. Recollect at the same time that if magnanimous souls with liveliness resent an affront, they also know how to forget one. Let your government return to itself and you will still find in the Frenchmen faithful friends and generous allies. And just in case you don't know how this story ends, it ends with French disappointment because Thomas Jefferson lost. So France really didn't want Adams, but of course they got Adams. They didn't declare war on us. No, it was BS. BS. Or as they call bullshit in France. So why am I telling you this? Well, it's because of a different dirty word. In the aftermath of an unprecedented attack on our democracy. Adam Hodge is with the DNC. This is unprecedented. This is unprecedented uh, for Russia or a foreign country in such a ham-handed and heavy way to be interfering in our political affairs. Unprecedented. When Russia meddled in the 2016 American elections, the leading voices in American media and politics all called it unprecedented. But as we now know, foreign election meddling isn't unprecedented. It stretches back literally to the earliest days of American democracy. And maybe you think, oh, shut up. That's totally different. Comparing 1796 to our modern times is a rhetorical trick. But oh, no, you shut up because you are missing the point. It wasn't just that once. After 2016, I was pretty alarmed at how so many commentators and so many policymakers tended to treat Russian interference in the 2016 election as somehow novel or unprecedented. This is David Scheimer, a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and a fellow at Yale University. And he was very concerned about that word unprecedented. Because to me, that's dangerous, because if you treat something as unprecedented, what you're saying is there's no history behind it. What you're saying is it's never happened before. And that makes it much easier to create rumors, myths and even lies about a subject. And what kind of rumors, myths and even lies might you hear? I mean, let's set aside the stuff that's purely political, which is a mess in its own right. But what's some way that mass culture could be impacted? Well, here's a popular belief, which is captured pretty well in a trailer for a new documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It is about the many evils of social media. 
If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. If technology creates mass chaos, loneliness, more polarization, more election hacking, more inability to focus on the real issues, we're toast. Let's talk about logic for a second. If something bad happens and it is truly unprecedented, then your first step would be to look for a very new cause. That's logical. If I wake up and discover that my face has turned lime green, which would be an unprecedented problem for me, then I would think, well, what did I do yesterday? Did I eat something I'd never eaten before? Did I touch something I'd never touched before? New cause, new effect. That's what I'd be looking for. And that is how, if you believe election meddling is new, you would reasonably investigate the thing that's newest, which you could argue is social media. But what if the problem isn't unprecedented? What if the problem extends far into the past when the newest technology we have didn't exist? That's what David Scheimer wanted to know. So he spent years talking to more than 130 former officials, including eight former CIA directors and a former KGB general. So what I wanted to do and what I do in my book is restore history to the subject of covert electoral interference. And to do so, you have to go back 100 years. 100 years to understand Russian interference, that is. France may have meddled in America's very beginnings, but what we've seen in 2016 and 2020 is actually just the latest in a century-long sustained effort from one nation. David just released the result of his work. It is a book called Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. And on this episode of Build for Tomorrow, I want to take you through his findings because they really help contextualize the conversation that America has been having. And look, I'm going to say this right up front. There is no easy answer to the question of election meddling, nor am I looking to diminish the subject. I'm looking to do the opposite, actually. I'm looking to say, you know, this is complicated. But over and over throughout history, including right now, we try to turn complicated problems into simple ones, generally by pinning them on whatever the newest innovation is. Juvenile delinquency could be stopped by destroying pinball machines for people who saw women's roles growing in the workplace. Place as a problem to solve. Well, the culprit was bicycles, novels, and teddy bears. And Russian interference on the American election? Well, that was social media. Simplify a problem and you are unable to solve it because you can't see its fullness. It's that simple. So let's unsimplify this a little, because the crazy thing about the history of election meddling is you will see the same tactics over and over again. Ready for the real repetitive history of bad behavior from abroad? It is coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, we're back. So before we get into the history of Russia screwing with other people's elections, let me address a common technological skepticism that you may already be thinking as I start comparing yesterday's meddling to today's. I actually just saw this play out on Twitter recently. So, okay, here was the exchange first from at the Theo Logan. Do you ever wonder what kind of damage is being done to our psyche on social media? 
jumping from one post that enrages us to then jump to another that brings us joy? Is that healthy? And then at the Derek Mast replied, People made the same argument for newspapers. To which at the Theo Logan made the very common retort, I don't know if that's an apt comparison. Do newspapers update as quickly as social media feeds? Obviously, they do not. And I hear this a lot. It's what I think of as the this time is different argument. As in, you can't compare yesterday's technology to today's because this time is different. Today's technology is just so much more powerful. But I talked about this with Jeffrey, the historian at the University of Missouri, and he said, you know, the thing you have to appreciate about technology and history is it's all relative. The thing is, it's all just a matter of speed. I mean, so in those days... The fact that you could hear something that only happened six weeks ago in Europe, that was like a big deal. We think, wow, I can look at my phone and know whatever's happening in the world. And they thought that about their four-page newspaper that they had. Think of technology in terms of its relative experience. Yeah, fine, our phones are fast, but our phones are fast compared to what? To dial-up modems, I guess. But do you think that in 100 years, people will think that the phones we use today are fast and complex? No, they'll think that they were stupid toys made for babies. Fast isn't objective. Engrossing isn't objective. It's all subjective. So if you live in a world in which it used to take months or years for information to travel, and now you've got a system of ships to move information across oceans and a printing press to cheaply distribute the news to basically all the people who could vote and make influential decisions, well, that feels fast. That feels like an addictive, insane, overwhelming amount of information, just as Twitter does to us now. Do we have our kind of speed fetish where we assume that this is all something that we invented, but they were gobsmacked. It was a communications revolution for them. So, all right, keep that in mind as we now look at how the technology of the day was used to interfere in elections throughout history. And we are going to turn back to David Scheimer to tell us about it. He interviewed again 130 former officials for his book Rigged. And before we even get into how Russia meddled with elections for the past 100 years, David wanted to clarify what covert election interference is even for, because this too has been simplified in the modern conversation. There's a temptation, I think, with every covert electoral interference operation to say that if you were engaging in covert action to influence a process of succession in another democracy, that every operation to do so is the same. And and that didn't exactly sit right with me at the outset of my research, because if you had a Soviet operation or an, or an American operation with wildly different objectives, but the same ideas to manipulate an election to achieve those objectives, there has to be something that's both the same and different across those two operations. So let's unpack that. First of all, note that David said Soviet and American operations, because it's not like America never interfered with foreign elections. It has. And as David studied the intentions of these two nations, he found two distinct objectives, which he calls either individual change or systemic change. Individual change is the smaller one. This is when a foreign nation just wants to pick the friendlier winner. They think that they'll benefit from having a particular person in power, like when the French wanted Thomas Jefferson over John Adams. Systemic change is when a foreign power wants to influence another nation's very system of government. David said that on individual change, America and Russia are 
basically the same. Both have inserted themselves into elections around the world with this very objective. But with systemic change, they are playing different games. There are differences there between American and Soviet operations targeting elections, not around coup plotting or other forms of regime change, just around who you support, which is that this Moscow tends to support disruptive authoritarian minded candidates, whereas the justification for American operations has tended to be we need to support these centrist candidates because they will maintain their democracy. So the ends justify the means, the means being we're going to manipulate this democracy in order to safeguard it, which is a very tense proposition. And that tension has played out over time. And of course, the phrase tense proposition is putting it lightly, as many nations around the world know all too well. America has plenty of history supporting non-democratic leaders out of its own self-interest, but generally speaking, in looking at patterns of systemic change over the past 100 years, David says the philosophy of America and Russia tend to serve opposite roles. America's idea of systemic change is to help strengthen others' democracies. Russia's idea of systemic change is to weaken others' democracies. Obviously, not the case in every Every single time, but that is the general trend he sees. And what does that look like? And why has this been going on for 100 years? Well, it starts at the very founding of the Soviet Union in 1922. Vladimir Lenin founded something known as the Communist International, which was an international body meant to unite the communist parties of the world and foment revolution abroad. And what Lenin sought to do was provide money, counsel, and support for propaganda organs to get communists elected so that those communists could then abolish their governments, abolish their pre-existing borders, and fulfill Lenin's vision for the world. That didn't succeed, of course, but it did put nations like the U.S. and the U.K. on high alert. Then the Soviets really stepped things up after World War II when Joseph Stalin's forces go marching around Eastern Europe and interfere really blatantly in elections in places like Poland and Hungary. There, you've got millions of pieces of propaganda distributed, and you've got ballots being tampered with, and you've got ballot stuffing, which is literally what it sounds like. Like, you would literally have caravans full of soldiers riding from polling place to polling place, just putting ballots for their preferred candidates into the boxes of polling places, like the most egregious form of ballot stuffing that you can imagine. And so America sees this and thinks, ah, crap, we got to do something, which is why Harry Truman authorizes the CIA to engage in covert action to influence the Italian election in 1948 with a massive, massive propaganda campaign. And now it is really game on. So, in fact, the starting point of CIA covert action was electoral interference. So now America and the Soviets are running around the world trying to save or destroy democracies by influencing elections. But of course, eventually these nations start targeting each other directly, too. And this is where you start to see super interesting parallels to what we saw in 2016. So first of all, the Russians making direct contact with a presidential campaign? Not new. In 60 and 68, the Soviet ambassadors to the United States directly approached first Adlai Stevenson and then Hubert Humphrey, who were leading Democratic politicians of their day with direct offers to help them get elected president. Both either rejected or ignored the offer. And here's another thing that'll sound really familiar. The KGB would try to find private information about the presidential candidate they didn't like, and then they would release that publicly to hurt that candidate. 
1976, they tried to do that um, with Henry Scoop Jackson, a Democratic presidential candidate. They couldn't find damaging private information, so they made it up. And then they sent that file to a bunch of different news platforms and presidential campaigns. They opted not to run it, so the operation failed. But the same idea you saw in 2016 with WikiLeaks was present there. And here was another tactic the KGB used. Find existing divisions among Americans and exploit them. I spent about half a day with a former KGB general interviewing him for my book. I went through hundreds of pages of KGB archives. And what came out was that the KGB or the Soviet objective was to show the world that America was just a hotbed of hate. That's a, that's a quote, to show that it was dysfunctional, that it was unenviable, that no country should want to be like the United States. So the motivation, therefore, was to emphasize fissures in America, exploit fissures in America, and then advertise those fissures to the globe. For example, in 1960, various United Nations delegations from across Africa and Asia received a disgusting racist note that had been signed by the KKK. The delegations were understandably offended, and the Nigerian ambassador actually read the letter for the record at the United Nations General Assembly, prompting the U.S. delegation to get up and apologize on behalf of the United States. But as it turned out, the KKK didn't send that letter at all. The KGB did. And it's recorded in the KGB's archives how thrilled they were that this letter got such traction that America was humiliated on the world stage based on a letter that, again, was said to have been signed by the KKK, but was actually signed by the KGB. David also found record of a plot the KGB thankfully never executed, but you can see where their head was at. They planned to detonate a bomb in a predominantly black neighborhood in America and then make it look like the bomb was planted by the Jewish Defense League. Do you think that it's reasonable for me to draw a line between the objectives of the things that you just said and the objectives of... Um, troll bots on Twitter? Oh, absolutely. I, one, of, one of the greatest myths about 2016 is that Vladimir Putin invented something or that his objectives were somehow new. They were not. Everything that Russia did in 2016 was a continuation of the past. One of those continuations was about sowing discord. Based on the interviews I did with the CIA's director, deputy director, the DNI in 2016, the leading objective of Russia's 2016 operation was to sow discord, discontent, chaos in American society. It should be surprising to no one that the IRA, the Russian troll farm that was involved in 16, targeted predominantly black Americans. That is a tradition of Russian and Soviet intelligence to seek to fan racial discord in order to divide Americans from one another and also to discredit the American model in the eyes of the world. And a, a, a long running pattern here is that the more divided America, the more vulnerable America becomes. Russia doesn't create fissures. Russia identifies fissures that already exist and exploits them, worsens them, exacerbates them. That's what the Russians were doing in 2016, just as that's what the KGB was doing during the Cold War. It's a long running idea. The Internet just presents new avenues, new pathways to do it. So if the Internet is just a new tool for old tricks, as David says, then I was curious what other technologies had been used in nefarious ways. If you dig through old media archives, for example, you'll find a lot of people pondering how radio will alter politics. Now, 
the early days of radio in general were met with a lot of debate about whether radio was healthy, whether it was too addictive, whether it filled our lives with an unhealthy amount of information and communication. People worried that radio would harm children's minds with conversations that sound exactly like how people talk about social media today. There is a great New York Daily News headline from 1932, for example, that said, quote, when it's homework or radio to child, radio's the winner. But on the question of politics, the early days of radio actually brought out a lot of optimism. People wrote about how it could strengthen democracy and increase participation. In 1928, the magazine Popular Science ran a piece that started by saying, This year, radio will elect a president. But that wasn't meant to be a bad thing. Popular Mechanics offered a very optimistic view of how radio would change the electorate, saying, for example, that this new form of mass media would give people a wider understanding of concrete governmental problems. Which maybe was overly optimistic, but it also said that by enabling speakers to talk directly to millions, make it possible for a man to be bigger than his party which I think we can all agree turned out to be true. That same year, in 1928, an article in Collier's Magazine said, The radio, properly used, will do more for popular government than have most of the wars for freedom and self-government. But of course, the story got more complicated. Cut to 1936, and the New York Times is running a story headlined, Europe's Radio Jitters. It says, Back in the days when radio was younger than it is now, it was thought that the possibility of nation speaking direct to nation over the air held out the prospect of better international understanding. But now that the European radio is expanding from its original national basis and nation is, at last, speaking direct to nation, the net result so far seems to be a gathering flurry of propaganda charges. In particular, Europe was rightly concerned that Hitler was using radio very effectively. And just to speed history along here, now jump to the 1980s, where people living in Florida, but also as far away as Texas, might turn on the radio every night to find this. This is Radio Moscow. Here is the news. First, the headlines. That is Radio Moscow being broadcast from Havana. So I asked David Scheimer about this, our Russian election meddling historian. I asked him how radio played a role in election interference. And he said, you've got to first consider a couple things. One, it's important to distinguish between what's overt and what's covert. Radio Moscow in the 1980s was like the television station RT today. There is no hiding that it's state-sponsored media. It is literally right there in the name. But when I pressed him on how specific technology had been used across time, he said, look, the technology is never really the driving force. I mean, the the, the perhaps discomforting reality about covert electoral interference operations is they don't have to be technologically advanced, really. They often thrive in the most basic ways, just, you know, identifying, targeting and manipulating people, figuring out ways to get propaganda in front of people in a precise and targeted way. So what this looked like in the past, now Russia targets or let's say corrupts a social media platform. Before that meant corrupting a newspaper. It meant corrupting a television station or a radio channel in order to plant propaganda that would then ripple more widely. And how would you do that? 
Well, it's simple, really. At any given time, in any given medium, you just figure out the way into people's attention. Today, it's troll farms and algorithms, and yesterday, it was people. Use cutouts or middlemen, um, like recruiting a, a vulnerable reporter to basically just launder your messaging through their platform, and then other platforms would pick up what that reporter published, and the idea was that the, the messaging would spread across the information environment of the country you were targeting. So um, fake news. There was fake news long before there were trolls and bots. So, okay, what have we learned here? In short, what happened in 2016 and what's happening in 2020 is not unprecedented, not even close. It is the continuation of 100 years of sustained efforts by Russia, and for that matter, the continuation of efforts from foreign nations that date back to the very beginning of the American experiment. And although social media has become a useful way to spread misinformation today, it is simply the latest tool in which to do that. So if you want to solve a problem, you cannot act like it's Twitter or Facebook. Facebook's fault entirely. You cannot say, oh, these are the newest things and they caused the problem because as David Scheimer said earlier, if you treat something as unprecedented, what you're saying is there's no history behind it. What you're saying is it's never happened before. And that makes it much easier to create rumors, myths and even lies. So what is the solution if it's not to throw Mark Zuckerberg in jail? What goes beyond the rumors, myths and even lies? Well, that is a big question with no simple answer because it is not a simple problem. But I will share what I found, and it's coming up after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. So we have dispensed with the idea that today's electoral interference is unprecedented or even new or reliant upon modern technology. So what next? Well, I put that to the two historians I talked to for this episode, and their answers were sweeping. First, here's Jeffrey L. Pasley from the University of Missouri, who said that the first thing we need to do is reframe the problem. Even when we say meddling like this, uh, it's an assumption that we're this kind of bubble that somebody can get inside. And we're never a bubble, right? I mean, we were never this isolate. People swing around the term American as exceptionalism. But one part of this is the idea that America is naturally isolated from the rest of the world. And that wasn't true in the 18th century. And it's kind of never been true. Everybody who deals with us is in some major issue, probably thinks they have some interest in who's going to win, who, who's in power here, just the way we do about other countries that we deal with. So there's some level on which we all just, we should just get used to that idea and assume that's happening. When he said that to me at first, I, it just sounded depressing. It sounded like, eh, what are you going to do? But no, no. The more I thought about it and the more I listened to him, the more I realized that he's giving us an important way to think. He's saying, look, America needs to face reality. And reality is that it is not some self-contained space. The entire world feels invested in the outcome of America's elections. So the country top to bottom needs to build that into its operating system. It needs to expect it. It needs to shore itself up because 
Come on. You know, if false stories on social media is enough to actually destabilize us, then I guess we weren't that stable to begin with. So get it together, America. And how exactly do we do that? Well, rigged author David Scheimer has a plan. If Russia is seeking to tear down our democracy, which it is, then we need to renew our democracy, both at home and abroad. And what that looks like at home is tackling both forms of covert electoral interference, efforts to alter ballots and efforts to influence minds. Then he started running through a list. The first thing we need to do is secure our election infrastructure, whether that means passing mandatory cybersecurity standards for states or otherwise, because so long as our actual systems are vulnerable to manipulation and sabotage, as they were in 2016, our government will find it very difficult to respond to this threat in a fluid and comprehensive way because of the fear of that worst case scenario of an election day cyber attack. But protecting democracy goes beyond protecting voter infrastructure. So point number two, guard against the manipulation of voters and start with a focus on the latest tactics which are the theft and release of emails and social media manipulation. With emails, what that means is reporters being more cognizant of the source of the stolen materials they're covering rather than just um, the messages contained within them. It means citizens being less gullible and being mindful of the fact that someone's trying to play them and caring about that, questioning why they're seeing the information they're seeing. Um, And it's on the government to attribute anonymous email releases in a more timely manner so that Americans have the information they need to know, okay, this was acquired by Russia, and therefore we know that it's Russia that wants us to see this. And there's a reason for that, because as long as this stays anonymous, it's very difficult to make that assessment from the perspective of the public. I love that because it puts the onus on every stakeholder. You know, a big part of the message from people who blame technology for social ills is to say, oh, we are powerless against this force of dark magic. And David is like, no, everyone has a role to play here from the people putting out information to the people consuming it. And of course, that does extend to the people running social media companies. David says these companies must be more transparent and responsible. They have a role in recognizing how they're being played and stopping it. He said regulation could play a role here, though he didn't say how. But the way he sees it, social media is just one part of a far larger ecosystem of media. And for that matter, the system by which we build and grow and maintain community And all of that needs tending to. The more divided a democracy, the more vulnerable a democracy. So the more we invest in ourselves, in local media, in public education, in our infrastructure, um, in healing racial divisions, that makes us less vulnerable to subversion for the tactics of the future because Russia's methods will continue to evolve. And finally, there's a major role to be played by the American and world governments themselves. So here is David explaining that and taking his argument home. America needs to renew its leadership abroad. We need to work with the coalition of democracies both to identify um, these operations to target our elections, but we also need to impose jointly costs on Russia for executing these types of operations, because so far Vladimir Putin has suffered minimal consequences for interfering in the heart of so many democracies, which is their elections. And until that changes, there's no reason to believe that his calculus will change in terms of pushing hard um, to sabotage the democratic process of succession and to manipulate the directions of foreign democracies in a way that suits his interests. And I think if we do both of those things, I think if we tackle our 
vulnerabilities at home with both our infrastructure and along propaganda lines. And if we also work with our allies to deter um, Russian interference, we won't be solving this problem by any stretch because, again, it will persist, but we'll be in a much better position than we are now, which is basically no real effort to defend ourselves at home on the part of so many of the actors I mentioned and no real effort um, to punish um, the perpetrators of these operations abroad. Does any of this sound easy? No, of course. But you know what? That is the point. Because the story of election interference is really an object lesson in treating big problems as big. And that may sound stupid and obvious, but I don't know, guys. This seems to be something we have trouble with from the earliest age. I have little kids, and one of the books they love is called Big Dog, Little Dog by P.D. Eastman, which is about a big dog and a little dog, a big dog named Ted and a little dog named Fred, and they're best friends, but total opposites. And one day they go on a trip and sleep in a hotel. And that is where the trouble begins. Ted, the big dog, sleeps in a small bed and Fred, the little dog, sleeps in a big bed and they both get a terrible night's sleep. They can't figure out why the next morning until a little bird arrives. Here's the book. I know what to do, said the bird. Ted should sleep upstairs and Fred should sleep downstairs. Which is to say, they need to switch rooms. So the dogs run back to the hotel and get in the beds that actually fit them and fall fast asleep. And then the bird flies over and delivers the moral of the story. Well, that was easy to do. Big dogs need big beds. Little dogs need little beds. Why make big problems out of little problems? And that's a great message for kids because kids are constantly making big problems out of little problems. But adults, well, adults do the opposite. They make little problems out of big problems. And it's easy to imagine why. Big problems are hard. They're not easily fixed. And they're also really inconvenient. They require work from everyone, people who don't generally agree with each other. And this work is not going to be work that everyone likes. And accomplishing it is at once Herculean and very grinding and systemic. Big problems don't generally produce heroes because they require too many people and they're too complicated to fit into a narrow spotlight. So you got to buy into that. But if you're a senator running for re-election or a television pundit or the maker of a documentary series about the dangers of social media, well, you are not going to get a lot of traction with huge, seemingly impossible 100-point plans to fix something as big as American elections. But if you can shrink it down to something simplistic, down to one villain, to something that you personally can tackle yourself, well, then you can be the hero. All eyes can be on you. And that is why it's so tempting to make little problems out of big problems. So here is my proposal. Whenever we hear someone say that they have an answer to a big problem and they are able to say that answer in the length of a television soundbite, then we should reply with two words. And here they are. What? else. What else? It is a modest proposition, I think. What else is a cry for complexity? What else is a push for more? What else has a built-in logic that what you've heard is just part of the story and maybe even a justifiable part of the story, but if it's treated as the only part of the story, then mistaking a campfire for a forest fire is what you are going to do because, boy, we have got ourselves a fire. But not an unprecedented fire and not even a new fire. It's just a fire. So who has got solutions? Please bring them. And then let's all say, what else? And that's our episode. But hey, speaking of that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, a bunch of listeners of this show reached out to tell us about a particular moment that, oh 
boy, they should have done some fact checking in that movie. Want to hear something really egregious and that frankly gives you a good insight into how desperately people want to simplify complex problems? I've got it for you in a minute. But first, if you love Build for Tomorrow, then please help support us. Subscribe, tell a friend, give us a rating and review, and stay in touch. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at at HeyPfeiffer, Hey, H-E-Y, Pfeiffer, F-E-I-F-E-R. You can also subscribe to my Build for Tomorrow newsletter at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. That is a regular dose of ways to find opportunity in change. And there's also a form there to reach out to me directly. I promise if you do, I will read and reply. Sound editing this episode was by Alec Bayliss. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. The voices you heard reading articles this episode were Gia Mora. You can find her at giamora.com and Brent Rose. Find him at brentrose.com. And we are grateful for the help of Pen Name Consulting. Build for Tomorrow is supported in part by the Charles Koch Institute. The Charles Koch Institute believes that advances in technology have transformed society for the better and is looking to support scholars, policy experts, and other projects and creators who focus on embracing innovation, creating a society that fosters innovation, and encouraging people to engineer the next great idea. If that is you, then get in touch with them. Proposals for projects in law, economics, history, political science, and philosophy are encouraged. To learn more about their partnership criteria, visit cki.com. Org. Again, that is cki.org. All right. So the documentary, The Social Dilemma, a movie that describes itself as being about, quote, the dangerous human impact of social networking, end quote, a movie that's basically a handful of tech critics who used to work in tech who say dire things about social media over and over again, but offer little in the way of solutions. One of those people is Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology. And at one point, he looks directly at the camera. And as a way of proving how uniquely dangerous today's technology is, he says... No one got upset when bicycles showed up, right? Like if everyone's starting to go around in bicycles, no one said, oh my God, we've just ruined society. Like bicycles are affecting people. They're pulling people away from their kids. They're, they're ruining the fabric of democracy. People can't tell what's true. Like we never said any of that stuff about a bicycle. Tristan, are you serious? Are you, are you joking? Are you trying to punk me here? What is going on? Who fact-checked this movie? Nobody fact-checked this movie, apparently. Build for Tomorrow, the podcast you are listening to right now, has an entire episode about how people thought the bicycle was the end of the world. Literally, just go back and listen to it. Here are actual, actual headlines from newspapers during the dawn of the bicycle in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Are you ready? Do bicycles hurt books? Excessive use of bicycle fatal. Does bicycling increase self Bicycles are blamed for youth's insanity. Bicycles affect church attendance. And it can go on and on like that forever. There's a whole episode about it. You know, if you are not willing to study these things and to take them seriously and to understand how the reactions of today are connected to the reactions of yesterday, then you are left to treat every new thing as if it is unprecedented. And again, just to hear it one more time. That makes it much easier to create rumors, myths, and even lies about a subject. So what else do you have, Tristan? What else? That's it for this time. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and let's keep building for tomorrow. <laughs>